Most of us would agree that sex is a good thing, but can there be too much of a good thing, even when it's sex? The answer is most definitely yes. It's estimated that close to 12 million Americans find themselves enslaved to sexual compulsions. There is no singular profile, but they all share at least one thing in common: their lives have proven to become unmanageable, and they bear the burden of shame and fear. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Today's program includes discussion of mature topics and may not be suitable for all listeners. Some people think it's a joke. Other people declare it an excuse. Yet the truth is, it is a form of unrelenting enslavement. By conservative estimates alone, one in twenty people in America suffer from sexual addiction. Most persons are unaffected and so don't notice it. Because it is hidden, that is, until one considers the numbers. There are 68 million porn searches every day. That's 25% of all search engine activity. And 27 million times, people type the phrase "help" for sexual addiction. And what are the main impediments for people getting help? There are two things: secrecy. And shame. You've probably heard of sex addiction. You might think it is a psychiatric condition, but technically, well, it isn't. The American Psychiatric Association does not currently recognize sex addiction as a mental illness. Therefore, no official diagnostic criteria exists for sexual addiction. Today, we will hear from two people who suffer from what they themselves call sex addiction. But first, I want to understand the position of the American Psychiatric Association on this topic. Therefore, our first guest is Dr. Nicole Prouse. Dr. Prouse received her PhD in clinical science with a concentration in statistics and neuroscience. In 2007, she also pursued neuroimaging as a research scientist at Mind Research Network and with the faculty at the University of New Mexico. She now lives in Los Angeles, where she founded her own company, Liberos LLC. Welcome to the show. Lovely to have you with us, Dr. Prouse. Question: We're looking at this whole idea of、uh, sexual, not dysfunction, but、uh, hyperfunction, if you will. Uh, some people say it's just simply an issue of、uh, obsessive behavior. Others say it is indeed an addiction. What do you say, Dr. Prouse? I think our best data so far make it look like most of the people who are worried about that、uh, have a high sex drive, but a lot of moral concerns about their very normal behavior. So that, to me, is what seems most likely at this point. So you just think it's、uh, an, an issue that they they just can't relax with their own sexuality? Yeah, largely it seems to be folks who are you know a lot of folks who are going into treatment for these programs are 
um, you know, stimulating themselves or viewing films a few times a week. And that's just normal. And we know that that's a common viewing pattern, but they just feel tremendously guilty about something that's really quite common for most of them. Well, obviously, there'll be some kind of continuing <clears throat> and measure of those who uh, feel varying degrees of dis discomfort, either socially or uh, with their private expectations for themselves. But Dr. Prowse, I've got to say, there are people I've met who are in tears, who are beside themselves um, uh, with terrible sense of loneliness and shame, uh, not just because they're partaking or imbibing of uh, what we call adult material, pornographic material, but their lives are out of control. So I think we acknowledge the distress. Clearly people are upset about this, and I don't think it's just for secondary gain. That is, it's not just celebrities saying, you know, they've cheated and they're trying to get out of the consequences of that. I think people are truly, uh, really upset about the sexual behaviors they're engaging in. The question for me is just, is it a disease? You know, there's some reason to think uh, that the behaviors that are making them upset are any different from any other behavior we might engage in too much. So you just purely take exception to the word disease. Uh, if we remove the word disease and we say uh, behavior, uh, are you then mm -hmm. at peace with the idea that people do have lives that are evidently out of control because they obsess and have compulsive behavior where they just want to perpetually masturbate or have some other risky sexual behavior with other persons? He almost had me. <laughs> but compulsive behavior, because compulsion is a disorder. But the absolutely, the, the having a behavioral problem. Um, we have lots of treatments for similar behavioral issues. So people who watch television too much, there are lots of good behavioral interventions to help those people. And we don't need to invoke a disease uh, to be helpful to them and to acknowledge how upset they are. Is alcoholism a disease? Yes. So there is lots of evidence that there are shifts that occur over time. There's withdrawal that occurs. There's peer reactivity, a number of things that have to be present to call something an addiction um, that are present for alcohol, that are not present for things like porn and sex. Well, isn't the dopamine and various other chemical responses that are going on in, in, in the brain when people have an orgasm and climax? I mean, there's a cycle that has been discerned by people, certainly in the social sciences, uh, of guilt, perpetual guilt coming out of it, feeling bad about oneself, rationalization. You've seen the clock kind of imagery and then going back to acting out and then relief, ecstasy momentarily, and then back to shame and guilt again. You don't think that that is uh, akin to the same type of thing we see with alcoholism? I think there are a few differences. I'll take, for example, the dopamine issue. So uh, dopamine is not a pleasure chemical. It's used in learning. And so anytime we learn something, whether it's something negative, that is to be angry in response to something, or something pleasurable, that is, uh, you know, I exercise and I enjoy that, or I play with a puppy and I enjoy that, um, these all invoke dopamine responses because we're learning and experiencing things emotionally. So uh, I am completely unconcerned uh, that dopamine changes. It doesn't mean anything specific to addiction. Well, I, I don't mean to be just, facetious, but playing with a puppy is not like an orgasm. I mean, there's... there's, there's a... Exactly. <laughs> so I think we're the only lab right now in the U.S. that's actively studying orgasm physiology in the lab. And so we've looked at some of these issues, and the early phases of arousal... Uh, actually do look quite pleasurable and very similar to other positive stimuli like puppies, like looking at babies. 
uh, in terms of the neural response. And then as we approach orgasm, it looks like our brain gets a lot more meditative. That is, we have kind of the cognitive release or letting go. So there's still quite a lot we don't know in fairness about kind of orgasm and high sexual arousal states, um, but we are working on it. And, you know, the idea I think is, you know, if someone is using sex to help themselves feel better, is that bad in and of itself? And it is if is afterwards they want to kill themselves. So the, I have not seen those cases documented in any rigorous way, um, but I don't doubt that people might feel very guilty about sexual behaviors they engage in to the point where, you know, they might have those uh, thoughts or feelings. And so in our lifetime, over 50% of people will experience suicidal thoughts, uh, ideation, not that they necessarily attempt, um, but these are common and intense feelings, and they could certainly arise from sexual guilt uh, that doesn't have to do with addiction, but just that we feel terrible about, for example, engaging in infidelity or uh, something we had agreed to ourselves we wouldn't do. Is there any kind of sexual practice or sexual urge or desire that is unhealthy uh, in your estimation, or is everything okay, particularly if it's in the fantasy level? I think as long as we're talking about consensual sexual behaviors, so, you know, once we're getting into pedophilia or sexual assault, that's, I think, clearly a different issue we want to set aside. But if these are consensual behaviors, there's nothing in and of itself that makes sexual behavior unhealthy. It's a balance within, you know, what can you manage uh, in your lifestyle, like what is reasonable for you, what have you agreed to in your relationship, so everything in the same context. Okay, everything is in its context. But what do you do when you have people who can't go to work, literally cannot go to work because they are addicted to porn at home or acting out and uh, they want to go to work and they can't? I mean, just as bad as somebody who has, has issues with they need that, uh, another drink. There are 27,000 people who have on Google, Googled the phrase, help for my porn addiction, help for my sexual addiction. That's 27,000 that can happen in yeah. a day, they say. Uh, so that concerns me a lot because, of course, porn addiction has not been recognized by any diagnostic body, national or international. It's been rejected after consideration for its current scientific status. So the fact that people have you know, been led to think that that's something that's going to be useful for them, I think, is very troubling. So I would be a lot more concerned about folks you know, if they're not leaving their home, um, if they're struggling to go to work, I'm worried about depression. I'm worried about social anxiety. But porn is, uh, you know, maybe that's something they're doing as a part of those disorders, but that does not make it an independent diagnosable disorder. And so far, the national and international diagnostic groups have agreed with that assessment. That is, these folks deserve help, but it's more likely that the nature of their problem is something that's already known that we have good treatments for. In your estimation, is there anything that people should feel shame about in regards to their own private sexual practices? Uh, private sexual practices, I would really struggle. I think it's uh, only to the extent that you're breaking promises with a partner. So, you know, don't make promises you can't keep <laughs> in terms of if you uh, do agree to not look at porn, then it will become a problem in your relationship if you do that. Uh, so, What about people who keep a promise or want to keep a promise to themselves that they're not going to partake of such things and then they go back repeatedly doing it? Isn't that a violation to self? 
That's exactly. So in those cases, that's what we're very interested in understanding is, you know, how do people develop that shame in the first place? And we want to understand whether it's better to treat the shame or to treat the behavior. And so far, the data are indicating that the shame is what should be worked on. We've been speaking with Dr. Nicole Prouse about the American Psychiatric Association's perspective on what is often called sex addiction, at least in layman's terms. When we come back from the break, we'll hear from a woman who wrote a book on sex addiction based on her direct experience. You are listening to Watching America. Today's program includes discussion of mature topics and may not be suitable for all listeners. Our guest is Erica Garza. She has written a memoir called Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction, which has been featured in the New York Times. It has been featured in Vice and The Guardian, the L.A. Book Review, and also Cosmopolitan magazine, amongst many others. She's appeared with Megyn Kelly on Today and also nationally on NPR. And now we are thrilled and delighted to have her in our own midst here at Watching America. Welcome, Erica. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Um, you said uh, in your book, you indicate that you remember vividly the first time you masturbated and having in the aftermath of that experience, the sense of satisfaction and yet shame at the same time. And you went on to indicate that you think in some ways you may have pursued that combination of pleasure and shame. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Well, I was raised in a Catholic Latino household where nobody ever talked about and so when I first made those explorations with my body, I didn't know what I was actually exploring. There was no words or no context in which to understand that what I was feeling and what I was pursuing was something that was really normal. And a lot of people were pursuing what would be after. I felt an immense amount of pleasure, obviously, but I also felt shame at the same time. And so I didn't know at the time how to separate those two feelings. And I just figured that what I was doing was something that was bad and wrong or otherwise people would be talking about it. Um, and so after that, I just came to rely on those two feelings being together at once. I couldn't have one without the other. And so that leaked into not only every time I masturbated would I feel the pleasure and the shame, but when I started to discover porn, um, and at, at the time, this was the late 90s, so it wasn't readily available, but I would find it on late-night cable. And then, of course, the Internet came out not long after that. Anytime that I watched those scenes, I would have that same experience. I would have the pleasure, but I would also have the shame. And how that began to affect my sexuality was that I sought that combination of feelings. And so later on, I would seek out porn as it became available that would produce a feeling of shame in me. So scenes that were misogynistic, scenes where women were being talked down to or degraded. And when I started to have sex, then I would, of course, seek that same combination again in men that would treat me the way that I saw the women being treated on the scene, so men who would talk to me in a degrading way. And so I just didn't know how to separate those two feelings from each other, and I just thought sex, the pleasure, had to have that element of shame with it. 
Did that cause further conflict for you in in terms of relationships with men in general? Uh, was that a necessity in order for you to have a relationship, or if you were in, if you will, for lack of a better term, a conventional normal relationship, did you feel inspired to have to convey to your partner that you wanted that as an element? I guess I didn't really outwardly say this is what I want, but I would lean more towards relationships that would give me that already. So I would seek out partners who would already treat me that way. And also we'd watch porn together in which I would see women act that way. And so if I would respond sexually to those scenes, then they would think, okay, this is what she wants. Um, She wants to be talked to this way. She wants to be treated in a rough way. But yes, it affected my relationship in that Whenever I felt myself caring about somebody, whenever I felt true intimacy happening or something that felt like love, then I would become very scared and I would pull away from that relationship and sabotage the relationship. And so I would prefer to seek out partnerships in which I would be treated that way and didn't really know how to relax into intimacy. There's varying degrees of Catholic adherence uh, in religious expression. Did your family participate in, in confession, and did you as a little girl or young woman participate in confession? And if so, would you bring these matters to the priest? I did participate in confession, but I never brought these matters to the priest, no. I mean, my sexuality was something that I feared other people would find out. It was something that I... Um, it took a lot of steps to cover and to hide, and I firmly believe that that feeling of hiding something and, and shame just affected me going forward and led to my addiction, because I don't think anything fuels addiction more than shame and isolation, and that was something that I did a lot of. We are talking to Erica Garza, if you're just joining us. She has a memoir, a book. She's the author of Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. Uh, She has, amongst other accolades, uh, an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia University. And she has also been uh, a recipient of a certificate in narrative therapy from the Vancouver School of Narrative Therapy. Uh, And born in Los Angeles to Mexican parents, she is now detailing her experience of self-discovery and shame and confusion related to her escapades into pornography and sexual addiction. Erica, are there any relationships that, in retrospect, you feel that you may have robbed yourself of because of your sexual addiction that interfered so severely that otherwise you could have potentially had a lovely, uh, fulfilling relationship? And if so, how have you dealt with that? Well, of course, if I look back in my life and I look back over the relationships, there are a lot of what-ifs that plagued my mind. You know, what would have happened, not just in romantic scenarios, but also with friends that I didn't nurture or, or you know, keep in contact with, um, with career opportunities that I didn't pursue. I mean, there are a lot of different routes that my life could have gone down, uh, but didn't because I was so committed or invested, actually, with these activities that kept me in a sort of box or kept me in a stasis that didn't serve me. Um, so, of course, yeah, I could look back and say that. But Um, There was one relationship, the one that actually led to me seeking help eventually, which was, you know, when I was 29 and I was in a three-year relationship with somebody that I really cared about and, you know, somebody I thought I was going to marry and it was somebody um, that I felt cared by. So I sabotaged that relationship just like I had sabotaged the relationships before it. But for some reason, that one in particular felt different. It felt like 
it was almost like a voice in my head had been telling me what was going on, that I was, you know, sabotaging my relationship and turning away from love. And it became louder and louder and harder to ignore. And I knew that, that this was the case in this relationship, that I was sabotaging it for no other reason than feeling unworthy and because I was stuck in a pattern I didn't know how to get out of. And so I saw my 30th birthday coming up and I thought, you know what, I want this decade to be better than the last or else all of my relationships are going to turn out this way and I'm always going to feel this alone and empty. Um, and so I took that, that feeling with me and I, I kind of went on a self-exploring uh, journey a la Eat, Pray, Love. I had just read the book Eat, Pray, Love, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. And so I was sort of inspired by that to do a journey alone. And I went to Bali. And while I was in Bali, I just started to reflect on my past and um, think about how I can do things differently and started meditating and paying attention to, you know, the patterns in my life and really taking a step in a different direction. And that led to going to 12-step meetings and to, um, you know, going to some therapy and really reflecting on my path and how I wanted things to be different. We've spoken at the outset about sexual sobriety. Have you attained that status or is it an ongoing battle for you, Erica? I have achieved it, yes. I mean, of course, there will be times of time where these issues come up, and I feel the need to escape, and I, I feel triggered again. Um, but now I am I feel much more equipped to face whatever negative feelings are coming up for me that I want to escape and become curious about those feelings and ask questions and take um, protective measures to handle them instead of running away again, because I know how that turns out. As we talk, there are people who are leaning forward towards a speaker from which your voice is emanating, and they're saying, tell me how I can get help. Tell me how I can amend or change what I'm going through, because they're saying, Erica, I'm you. What do you have to say to these people? Well, the first thing that I would tell people, and I often get you know messages from, from readers who want this kind of information from me, the first thing I tell them is that you're not alone. Um, because it's very easy to think with something like sex addiction or porn addiction that you're all alone because people aren't talking about it as as openly as they should. After realizing that, I think that going to a place in which you can feel less alone is really helpful. So I often suggest people go to 12-step meetings. Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous is a good one, as well as Sex Addicts Anonymous. Um, and even if, you know, you don't believe in the higher power and the sort of things that come along, the, the language that they use in 12-step meetings, it's still a good place to find a like-minded community of people who will be able to listen to you speak openly about these issues that you may be hiding for a long time um, and, and find a place of support. And, of course, you know, you can find therapy, therapists, uh, sex addict therapists, or just normal you know, marriage and family therapists. You can talk about these issues with that can also be really helpful. How did you make that break from the isolation that you felt to being open, vocal, and even an advocate for people getting help? What was the turnaround? When, when were you able to step out? And for instance, in front of your family, has it been difficult to let your parents and other family members know that you've had this struggle? How did you overcome the embarrassment? Well, it takes some time, but one of the first steps that I took even before going to Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meetings, which I found to be really helpful, um, was just talking to somebody that I trusted. And so I told you about that trip I took to Bali. Mm -hmm. While I was there, I met, the ma I met the man who became my husband, who's my husband now. Oh, and great. He was great. He was, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, he was um, on a similar journey. He was also an addict, but um, with alcohol and drug use. 
And we were sort of there for the same reason, to do things differently, to step out of our patterns. Ah, so, so there, was, there was empathy between the two of you in related to your respected uh, addictions. Absolutely, yes. And so I took a chance one day, and I felt that I trusted him, and I told him that I thought I might be a sex addict. And it was a thing that I feared saying, and I feared people figuring out about me for so long that to say it to somebody uh, felt just like such a relief, like a weight had been lifted. And to my surprise, he didn't run away. Um, he wasn't scared or turned off by it. You know, he wanted to hear more and support me. And so that was really paramount to my um, my recovery from the beginning. And I felt if this is such a relief to say it to one person, then if I keep saying it and I keep talking about this, then I know that I'm going to achieve some sort of healing. And that's exactly what happened. I started writing about this. Um, and then I started going to therapy, like I said, 12-step meetings, and all of those venues just provided me the opportunity to just uncover my secrets, to reveal myself, to expose myself, and to show people this is what I'm all about. And, you know, some people, of course, are going to be turned off by it or uncomfortable, um, but some people, more often than not, are going to be willing to listen and receiving that support from other people and a nod of recognition from other people who have also been there and have been hiding it for a long time, I think is, is a really important step to take in the recovery process. And finally, when did you arrive at the conclusion that you had indeed reached sexual sobriety? When did you know? I would say very early on, after I got into that relationship with my husband and I had started going to the meetings, I went to a lot of therapy. It's hard to say because I don't like giving a number. I would say it was probably Mm -hmm. six months into recovery or something like that. But of Mm -hmm. course, that's going to look different for every person. So I'm reluctant to to give a time frame because, of of course, it's going to be different for each person in recovery. We've been speaking here on Watching America with Erica Garza. And she is the author of her memoir, Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. Erica, you've been a delight. I want to welcome you anytime back to this conversation about this matter or any other. And we wish you and your husband many, many happy years together. Thank you so much. This is Watching America. I'm Alan Campbell. When we return, we'll speak with another guest who will share his experience with sexual addiction, a layman's term, as we have noted earlier. And we'll look at his path to recovery. We'll be right back. Listening to Watching America, the name and voice of our next guest have been altered to protect his identity. Today's program includes discussion of mature topics and may not be suitable for all listeners. Welcome back to Watching America. Our guest now is a gentleman called Charles, and that is an alias he has decided to use, and we are happy to oblige. Uh, Charles has gone through the experience of struggling with sexual addiction uh, in various forms, and we're so entirely grateful for him being with us here today. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. Um, We grow up, and at some point we're exposed to sexual material. When did it first happen for you? very young. The first time I was uh, 
I think, really triggered. I was uh, five or six years old. That early? Yeah. Can you describe the circumstances? I saw an adult woman naked, and uh, it triggered me, and it's a memory that I've had ever since. Okay, and uh, a live woman. Yeah. And um, what was your initial reaction to that? Was it fear? Uh, uh... Curiosity. Okay. And with, without being indelicate, uh, was there a physiological reaction immediately? Not that I recall. I just knew I wanted to see it again. Right. Okay. And uh, as children are curious, naturally, about anything, did you try and, if you will, execute a plan that would permit that to happen again? I became uh, somewhat of a peeping Tom at that point, trying to sneak peeks wherever I could. I didn't go looking through windows, but if it looked like a, an opportunity would become available, I took advantage of it. What was the next progression after that? in your sexual awareness? Well, I'm old enough that the magazines that were available, commercially at least, uh, were not that explicit, that mostly topless women, that uh, wasn't until I got into college that started seeing pictures that, that had full frontal pictures of women. And that's, I won't say that's one of the benefits, but it's one of the issues that I had was it took a long time before I got to see what we would consider pornography today. It was more nudist magazines and playboys and all of that. That uh, I was well into college, maybe even out of college, before I saw my first eight millimeter movie, and uh, and I was in in my late forties, early fifties before internet became readily available, and you could go on and see, uh, you know, what we would consider pornography today. Did that affect your your dating life early on? Even though you hadn't progressed to looking at penthouses or anything at that point initially, when you with your first encounter with girls, um, how did that impact you? Always wanting to see what they, imagining what they looked at naked. Um, one of the things I found out, I have found out about addiction is that is uh, you're acting out behavior or filling a hole that you have, that there's something that's missing. And so alcoholics drink and gambler, gamblers gamble. And, and, uh, and I filled that, that void with uh, progression in, into seeking out nudity and naked females. To the extent that you're comfortable, what was your home life like growing up? My mother and father very conservative. We didn't talk about feelings. Uh, and it wasn't that's just who they were. I mean, they were they were good people. They were good Christian people. But my mother especially would have been appalled if had she thought that I even saw the even the Playboys of the of the late fifties and sixties. That that would have been appalling to her. Was the fact that this material, even by those standards of the time of the late fifties, sixties, was illicit? Was that part of the, if you will, the ingredient to the excitement of? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, when I got away to college, that uh, there were some guys that had found magazines that were much more explicit. Uh, I don't really remember seeing sexual acts until even much later, after I was married and stuff, before I was exposed to any of, uh, the, the, at least the print. Were you able to keep this somewhat secret from your oh, wife? Yeah, it was the biggest secret I had. How did you manage that? How did you achieve it, to oh, keep you, it a secret? Addicts are wonderful at deception and hiding things and secrets. I can remember going to early meetings where people said, you know, I'm not proud of this, but I'm the world's best liar. And, you know, boom, I'm, I'm right in. This, these are my people because that's what I was. 
there were two sides of me. One was, was the public Charles, and then the other was the attic Charles. And um, they were so different. Nobody could have guessed. I was active in the church. I was uh, successful at my occupation. But uh, when I wasn't working... You've raised a very interesting uh, issue. You spoke about your faith, and uh, I'm assuming that your faith was genuine. Absolutely. How did you travail and walk the path, if you will, of being a man of faith? I, uh, you said you were a Christian. I presume you yes. believed in the Bible and read the Bible and yes. in Jesus Christ. How did you rationalize that with your, with your weakness? Uh, were you hard on yourself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, it a uh, tremendous amount of sh- guilt and shame. Uh, which is, I, I continue to have bouts of that to this day because uh, I, I was not the person that I wanted to be. And the addiction spreads not just in, in the pornography and in uh, sex outside of my marriage and all of that. It's who I became as a person. It, the addiction consumed me and um, it affected everything. The, it affected my relationship with my children, with my ex-wife, with her family, with my family. And it wasn't that they knew what it was. It was just that I was in turmoil. And when it finally got exposed and everything, I can remember my ex-wife saying, well, this explains a lot. And, uh, and it does. It does explain a lot. One of the things was I hated holidays because... Thanksgiving, for example, we would start out very early in the morning and go over to her aunt's house and help them with the meal, and we'd spend all day at the meal, and that kept me from acting out with the the pornography or whatever, and I became very angry because it kept me from doing what I normally would do in a day's time and all of that, and alcoholics do the same thing. If you put them in a situation where they can't do their normal drinking they become very uncomfortable and irritable and um and so it you know it affected everything and of course at the time i had no idea that that's what the result was but as i look back now i said man i really was a jerk you know i i I don't know how they stood to be around me at all and obviously it was the love of the family and all of that but uh it's impacted my relationship with my ex-wife and my kids to this day that i'm still in the process of trying to rebuild relationships and and uh, trying to show people that I am a different person than I was, you know. Was there anything that could be a suitable distraction, if only for a few hours, to allow you not to think about pornography and acting out? Not at that time. What I found is since I've been in recovery, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, actually, I tell people this. I spent so much time involved in my acting out behaviors that it consumed all this time. So when I stopped doing it, I had this enormous amount of free time. <laughs> so one of the things I always wanted to read was Shelley Foote's uh, three books on the Civil War and uh, the three volumes together, 28, 2900 pages. And if you read it, that essentially is done from three points of view, from the point of Washington, either it was either Lincoln or the or somebody in Congress, and then the North and the South. And, and uh, it was very, you know, Foot did a wonderful job writing these things. I was reading this thing, so I'd start drawing maps, trying to keep up with all of this. So I ended up, to, my wife comes in one day and she says, you got to do something. She says, we've got to be able to use that table. And I said, well, you know, it would be better if, if we could buy one of these three foot wide dot matrix printers so I could print these maps out instead of drawing them. And, and she finally had to come in and she says, okay, you've replaced one addiction with another. You've got to stop <laughs> 
and and come back to earth. And that's one of the things that I've been able to do over the past number of years is refocus and and not not become so obsessed on one thing or another. I, for a well, while, I was obsessed on my my addiction. Now. I have multiple interests and do multiple things. So. Well, at least with the latter addiction, it doesn't induce shame. No, it didn't. Yeah. It didn't. But it was all-consuming, and that was the, the the addict's personality, is that that whatever their addiction is, that uh, that consumes what they're doing, and that's, you know, that's part of the recovery process, is learning about that and trying to, you know, find other interests so you're not all focused on the same thing, so. As an addict, you're constantly at battle with yourself. Your higher self knows that what you're doing is not what you desire. And yet, for lack of a better term, the more base part of your nature still longs for it and, and wants it. Besides magazines, video material, did other manifestations of your addiction begin to emerge? Oh, absolutely. Strip clubs. I spend an enormous amount of time and slip off into those during the daytime when... when uh, the family wouldn't know what I was doing. Um, they were in school or she was working or whatever. Um, I got into escorts and, and uh, dealing with them. Some of the guys that, that I worked with convinced me that that I could probably have some brief affairs, and I, I did. And uh, I ended up with a couple of different women having a, both of them a long-term affair. Regarding the escorts and services of uh, prostitutes of one form or another, uh, what kind of of a financial toll did that eventually take? Oh, it, it took a lot. I made pretty good money. And, and so the money in one respect wasn't missed. But as I look back today, uh, what could I have done with all this money that I spent on this? Uh, and that gives me pause. That, that, that brings me back into that shame again because it you know i deprived the family with something either savings or investments or a nicer holiday or, or whatever you know there were a, a variety of things that i could have done with that money other than feeding my addiction but that's that's what happens is you feed your addiction you know as a man who attended church and uh, a man with religious leanings did you pray to god to take this absolutely every day away from you yeah every day one of the uh, readings that we use at our meetings talks about we have tried multiple times to beat this addiction and always failed. And that's how you end up in, in the 12-step program because you have to find some way to deal with this. And we call them tools, that there are tools that we use. We have a concept called three circles. We have an outer circle, which is appropriate behavior. We have an inner circle, which is inappropriate behavior, stuff we never want to do again. And then there's the middle circle, which is our triggers. And if we get into a trigger that after a while you recognize that as a trigger and then you start doing stuff in the outer circle to keep you from progressing into the acting out behavior. And so, and that can be something as simple as going for a walk or reading a book or calling a friend or, or whatever. But one of, one of the options, obviously, is to go to church. Uh, another is to pray. As a religious person with spiritual proclivities and leanings, uh, when you took this matter to God, either in church or outside of it, were you ever mad at him for not immediately removing this monkey on your back, this, this addiction? I need God's help. I have surrendered to God in the program. This was not God's fault. This was Charles' fault. Uh, it was completely my doing that I was an addict. Uh, 
I couldn't fix it by myself, but there wasn't anybody that got me into it other than myself, and there wasn't anybody else responsible for getting me out of it, that the, the responsibility is mine. One of the, the foundations of the 12-step program is to, one, admit you're powerless, and two, that there is a higher power. My higher power is God. But a higher power can be anything outside of yourself that you realize has more power than yourself. All addicts, before they go into recovery, use themselves as a higher power. That's how you, you stay in it. That, you know, they're, ah, there's nobody better than me. Yeah, there's nobody this, that, and the other. That I'm all powerful and omnipotent almost at, at that point. But I found that out, that, that I'm not. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weak sinner that will always be an addict. I will die an addict. But because I have a 12-step program, I have hope that each day I can remain sober and progress through recovery. With alcoholics, they say very often that you have to reach bottom before you will even attempt to be able to pull yourself up. For you, Charles, with your sexual addiction, what was bottom? When my second wife found out what I was doing. Describe that. Uh, She caught me in pornography, and, and she told me, she says, I'll be here tonight, but I may not be here tomorrow night. She says, you're a sick man, you need help. And uh, I went on the internet and found out a meeting, and I went to the meeting, and, and uh, that was the first day in my, my uh, road to recovery. So. Let's go back to that first meeting. You pull up to some location. There's a church. You got out, you walked into a church. Uh, I presume you went into a fellowship hall or a basement That's or somewhere. Right. And when you walked in, were you afraid? Were you uh, concerned that you were going to meet somebody you knew? That wasn't a concern. I was terrified, absolutely terrified going in there. Um, nobody wants to fail at anything, I, I assume. I think most people who are not addicts understand that there is failure and there is success. Uh, but I, as an addict, and I can only speak to myself, I've, I've talked to other people who agree with me on this point, we are terrified of failure, uh, we are terrified to be exposed. I got into the room. And I found out not only were there other people like me, there was a room full of people who were like me. And this load was lifted off my shoulders mm-hmm. like I'd never seen. I got home. My wife is familiar with 12-step programs. And she says, how do you feel? I said, I feel great. She says, you found out you weren't the only one, didn't you? And, uh, and, and I nodded. And this is something I, I tell a lot of people. They don't understand this. But as tough as it was to go to the first meeting, the second meeting, I think, was harder. Explain that. Because I knew what I was getting into then. First time, I had hope that this was going to, to help. Second time I went, I realized how much work this was going to be, how I was going to have to change my entire life to get sober and to stay in recovery. Did the one? I'm sure one of the steps was to get rid of your pornography. Did that incite fear and dread in you? No, it didn't bother me at all. That isn't one of the steps. That's, uh, But... That is one of the things you know you have to do. You know, the first step is that I am powerless over this addiction, and uh, and I knew I was powerless. And the only way at that point was to get rid of everything, and uh, and uh, and so I did. But I didn't have much print stuff at that point, so that that wasn't a big issue. Uh, the computer's a wonderful thing. I'm not savvy enough to be able to go back and and recover deleted material. So boom, hit delete, and it's all gone. Also. Um, the uh, links to websites and all of that was very simple to, to get rid of those. So 
effort-wise, as far as getting rid of the stuff, wasn't a big deal. It was mentally, it was a little more of a, of an issue. But by that point, I I had hit the bottom, and I wanted a different life. And I desperately didn't want to lose this wife. I'd lost the first wife because of it. I didn't want to lose this wife. So when I made the decision that uh, I was going to change my life, that uh, hitting those delete buttons wasn't anywhere near as difficult as I might have imagined. If somebody's an alcoholic, they don't necessarily have to apply whiskey to their lips again. It's a struggle, but they don't have to do it. They will drink water and Coca-Cola or something else. To be in a healthy marriage, one has sexual expression. How did you differentiate between having a healthy sex life continuous with your wife and then perhaps the trigger or associations that would naturally come forward with pornography and imagery? Were you able to do that? And what's your advocacy to people who are struggling? People often ask me very early in their their meetings and stuff that we'll talk after the meeting is over and they'll say, what's the secret? And I say, well, there isn't a secret, but you do need to understand that you have got, that, that sexual behavior in and of itself is not bad, but there is bad sexual behavior and there is acceptable sexual behavior. You have got to decide with your partner what's acceptable sexual behavior. And you've raised a topic, which is something that, that, uh, that apparently only two addictions that I'm aware of face. You said with alcoholics, you're told you can't drink again. They're in an alcoholic who can have a glass of wine with dinner. They, they, they can't touch it again. Gamblers are the same way. Drug addicts are the same way. But sex addicts and overeaters have to use appropriate behaviors and not say to their addiction, I'll never do Now, there are some people that do that. There are some people that go to abstinence, and that is their solution and more power to them. I choose not to. In fairness to your spouse. Yes, yeah. yes, correct. And um, my therapist has told me, he says that the, those are the two toughest addictions that he's dealt with. He's done it for 35 years, and he says that it's a whole lot easier to deal with alcoholics and drug addicts than it is to with you guys because we're not telling them, well, they can, you know, you can have one drink a day. Right. Because we know that doesn't work. So we have to teach you the tools to use. You and your partner have got to establish boundaries that are acceptable to both of you. If you can't do that, then the kindest thing you can do is to separate because, it, because it, it's, it's not fair to them. But it's, it's unreasonable for most cases for people to choose abstinence. You can't do it as far as eating goes, obviously. You'll starve to death and you'll die. Um, but with, with uh, sexual behavior, that that's a natural thing that is rewarding to you if done appropriately and, and uh, you've, you've got to reach the medium where you are. It's not as difficult as it might sound uh, once you get in the program and you understand the tools and you, you use the strength of the steps and you use your sponsor and you use the people who are in the meetings and, and all of that, that they give you the support you need to be able to do that. This is a mental disease. I've had both my medical doctor and my therapist tell me many times, this is just like you have high blood pressure or diabetes. There just isn't a pill to solve either one of them. I think that's so important and insightful what you just said. It's a mental disease. It is. It's a mental illness. So besides going through the 12-step program, 
I see a therapist on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to me, they've been invaluable. I can't say that would work for everybody, but it has worked for me. I found that even after working the steps and dealing with a sponsor and going to meetings and doing service work for the, for the 12-step program, that it wasn't enough to help me get to the, the bottom of the, that hole that I was talking about, where that hole came from, and, and what I can do to help fill that hole. Mm. And uh, and my therapist helps me with that. Well, let me mention therapists and uh, the people in the professional psychological community. In the preparation of this show, we've spoken to various experts. And there seems to be uh, no shortage of experts in the field who would say that there is no such thing necessarily as sexual addiction or it's just a malady of something else. And uh, a few of the people I've spoken with have indicated that it's just well, basically religious uptightness that has led to people feeling shame about themselves and it's a normal sexual appetite. What say you about that rather, if you will, very, very uh, open and excusing uh, attitude towards it? Well, if you look at the old definition of, uh, of addiction, that they very simply put it down that to be an, an actual addiction, there has to be a physical withdrawal to get off of it. So alcohol, you go through DTs. With drug addiction, obviously, you go through the same thing. I can tell you, as as an addict, mm-hmm. I felt physical withdrawal when I did away with the pornography and, and all of the other stuff. I was miserable. What is it like? How does it manifest itself? How does it feel? What do you do when you're withdrawing? It's... Uh, it's physical discomfort, stomach aches, it's muscle aches. It's, uh, I had tremendous headaches because, you know, part of the, the whole sexual routine that you go through, uh, part of it is arousal. And you get to the peak, you get a release. And when you get in that whole process, that there are different chemicals going through your system that are rewarding you for what's going on at this point. And that's why the, there's pleasure involved in it. And an alcoholic will tell you that, that they get that, that sense of euphoria and, and also they'll get peace. And all of a sudden, things level out and they feel good. If they're not drinking, they don't feel that way. If they take a drink, they get that. And eventually, they end up getting intoxicated. And I know the same thing goes on with, with the drugs. I've had surgeries where I had to take some fairly powerful narcotic pain relievers to get through the recovery period. And I know the feeling of, or the lack of feeling in a lot of cases. So you missed the euphoria? There's no question. And and that's so short-lived mm. because very soon after you get that euphoria, all of a sudden that shame sets in again. Right. And, and I mean, that can almost be split-second-like. So You spoke earlier of reaching rock bottom, which in your case was when your wife declared, I will be with you tonight, but I may not be with you tomorrow night. And that was the inciting incident that led you to take the change to actually go to a meeting. How is your marriage now? You know, the first thing you lose is trust. And, um, and it doesn't make a difference whether you're a sex addict or an alcoholic or drug addict or somebody who's had a single affair, for example. Mm-hmm. So the, the trust is destroyed. How do you rebuild trust? Well, the only way I know to rebuild trust is to not do the things that I did be completely honest with with uh, with my wife, and uh, one of two things will happen: either the relationship was strong enough that they will 
sit there and tolerate this for a while and watch and see if you do get better or the relationship is so damaged that it doesn't make any difference at that point. I was lucky. I had uh, my wife tolerated what I was doing and about four years after I got into the program, we were eating lunch one day and she looked at me and she says, I just want you to know something. I said, what's that? She says, I forgive you. Hmm. And uh, I was bringing a tear to my eye right yes, now. Yes, you, <laughs> as you sit before me right now, you have tears that are deep in your eyes and down your cheek. You know, there isn't anything you can do other than your behavior that can get you to that point. You have to have a forgiving person that you're dealing with. But mm. if if I had not gotten into the program and not worked strong on my recovery and all that, I never would have had a chance at that. It's 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 gotten progressively stronger. We've uh, we've been married quite a few years now, and, and uh, uh, the marriage today is stronger than it was before she found out what my behaviors were back when we were early married, and uh, and that's one of those things that uh, I'm just grateful for. I'm grateful when I wake up every morning and I'm I'm in recovery. Our guests have been neuroscientist Dr. Nicole Prouse, Erica Garza, who is the author of Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction, and Charles, who remains anonymous to protect others in Sex Addicts Anonymous. To find more information about Sex Addicts Anonymous and meetings near you, please visit saa-recovery.org. Watching America is made possible by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Todd Washburn, our producer extraordinaire, Paul Bebo, senior producer and recording genius, editor, Gina Gamboni, executive producer, Chuck Dowd, chief of content, Heather Mazzoni, and CEO, Bert Schmidt. I am watching America's creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.